John MacArthur once said, A thankful heart is one of the primary identifying characteristics of a believer. It stands in stark contrast to pride, selfishness, and worry. And it helps fortify the believer's trust in the Lord and reliance of his provision. Even in the toughest times. No matter how choppy the seas become, a believer's heart is buoyed by constant praise and gratefulness to the Lord. Turn with me, if you would, please, to the book of Philippians. The title of my sermon today is A Thankful Church. The Apostle Paul is the writer of the book of Philippians, and according to scholars, Paul wrote the letter to the Philippian Christians while he was imprisoned in Rome in AD 62. The church at Philippi was special to Paul as it was his first church founded that he founded in Europe. And he wanted to share with them that a Christian servitude should be modeled after Christ who made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant to serve those not worthy to be served. And that's you and me. And he wanted to encourage them to make progress in their faith, even during hardships. So let's read the passage beginning in verse four of chapter four. The Apostle Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it is an honor to come here today and gather to bless you with our worship of you. And we thank you for your word, and we ask that the Holy Spirit would teach us this morning and that we would receive encouragement from you. In Jesus' name, amen. A thankful church. Let's look at verse 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. As we look at this verse, I think it's appropriate to say that it expresses a key theme in the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Further, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. We see Paul expressing to the church, not just once, but multiple times, that they are to rejoice. Now, you know, joy is such an important factor in our lives as Christians. It is such a vitally important factor in our spiritual stability as believers. So much so that Paul repeats himself here and he says, again, I say rejoice. In other words, it's not easy being joyful. Now, sometimes we get confused on what joy is and how it demonstrates itself. I think we all can sometimes wrongly identify joy with as purely being just a human emotion, like at a birthday party and you're getting a present, you express joyfulness, or at Christmas, joy when you get what you want at Christmas for <clears throat> as a gift. But joy isn't really just a feeling in this context, it's not. 
the joy that is being talked about here by Paul is a deep down confidence that God is sovereign over everything for our own good and for his glory so that no matter what circumstances may come or arise or have come and arisen, no matter how hard life gets for us, it's going to be okay. So God is telling us here in this verse to have a continual habitual practice of being confident that he is in control over everything and that he has his glory in mind when it comes to the trials that we face in this lifetime. And this is important in light of Paul's circumstances during his writing of this letter. Remember, he's imprisoned in Rome. There is that possibility of being executed looming over his head. And he loves and is burdened for the churches that he had planted and he's concerned for their well-being. This is important for the church at Philippi. As they were experiencing struggles from within concerning disunity. And the culture around them was pagan and the, the gospel wasn't being received well. Yet neither Paul's imprisonment or the, Philippi, uh, the Philippians' struggles should overshadow their joy, their confidence in God's sovereignty over all their struggles. Think about all the hardships that we've had in our lives. Deaths. Illnesses. The loss of friends. Personal suffering. The hardship of indwelling sin. These are reasons that make it hard to rejoice in God. They don't evoke joy in us. We can be sure of this though. The only sure, reliable, unwavering and unchanging source of joy is God himself. Only God. People will let you down. Me as your pastor, I will let you down. People will hurt you. People will disappoint you. But not God. Never God. Don't look for stability in someone or something or anything else other than God. Our stability must be directly related to Christ and how we think about him. Knowing who God is, is key to rejoicing. When we know who God is, when we walk with him throughout our lives, when we have fellowship with him through his word and the spirit, rejoicing in challenging times will be much easier than the one who's never known God. Who has no relationship with the Creator. When hardships arise, we can rejoice because God is our redeeming love. I think of Mary after Elizabeth calls her blessed for believing God. Mary says, My soul 
magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Luke 1 Here she is, this young pregnant girl who is unmarried. And according to Jewish law, she is supposed to be stoned to death for committing adultery, though she did not commit adultery. She was a virgin. But how many people actually believe that she would conceive a son by the Holy Spirit? They probably thought she was crazy saying that stuff. And logically speaking, if she was pregnant, they thought it wasn't by a Holy Spirit. It was in sin. She was committing adultery. So she was most likely not looked upon very well by her neighbors or even members of her own family. Joseph was even going to call it quits on the relationship. Think about her emotions and what she was going through at that time. Think about how hard life was for her. And yet she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She knew the truth. She walked with God. She knew his word and she trusted him and knew that he would provide for her just what she needed to get through the hard times that she faced and would face in her lifetime. She knew God was her salvation. And he's your salvation too, brothers and sisters in Christ. Neither height or depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. So no matter what it is in life, remember, just as Mary did, that God is sovereign over it. Trust him in good times and trust him in hard times. Be reminded that joy is that deep down confidence that God is absolutely sovereign over everything for her own good and for his glory, glory, no matter what it is. And all will be okay in the end because one day we'll be with Jesus. I look forward to that day. Let's look at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, if you were to look at the original language of the word reasonableness, it means to have a gentle forbearance with others. D.A. Carson says, it is the opposite of being contentious and self-seeking. The word reasonableness can also be translated as graciousness. John MacArthur says that this word is having a graciousness of humility, the humble graciousness that produces the patience to endure injustice, disgrace, and mistreatment without retaliation. Bitterness or vengeance. It is contentment. 
And if we look at Jesus as our example, we read in Scripture that his life and his ministry was filled with this graciousness. Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he states, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Now, of course, Jesus' graciousness, his gentleness was not tainted by sin. Ours will not be perfect. But just as Paul was able to be empowered with Christ's gentleness and meekness, so we can be as well. You know, one of the qualifications of a pastor is to be gracious to others. We see that in Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And that's my prayer as one of your pastors. And that's CB's prayer, that we would be gracious to you. And we let you down. We screw up. And we're thankful for you being quick to forgive when we do. But I think I think CB more than I excels at being gracious. I've got a lot to learn from him. And I'm really blessed that he's my pastor. And so Paul is addressing Christians, stating that we should display this gracious, gracious and gentle spirit with one another and with the world who is watching us. And that's not easy. It can be hard and challenging to be gracious in today's culture. You look at the world of politics today. There's hardly any evidence of reasonableness there. There's no graciousness at all in Washington at this time. There's a war going on. Republicans hate Democrats. Democrats hate Republicans. There's constant mudslinging, tit for tat. Adults doing what we're trying to teach our children not to do. I don't even know if I can call anyone in Congress or Senate or in the White House a role model for my children. There may be a handful, but if that, but for the most part, I just know this, I would have been disciplined by my parents if I acted as they acted. It can be so hard to be gracious and gentle in our relationships also with one another in the church. With our spouses, with our children, with our friends. Our children are watching how we relate to our spouses, whether we think it or not. It's like they have bionic ears and bionic eyes, and they can hear everything. Husbands, are we living with our wives in a way that brings glory to God? And I'm preaching to myself here. Are we being thoughtful toward her? Are we acting in a selfless manner? toward her? Are we humble and owning our sins when we sin against her? Are we being gentle with our words and actions toward her? People are watching. May we have a gentle spirit that is known by all men, including little ones. How about how we relate to one another, ladies? How are you relating with other ladies in the church? Is there jealousy? 
Is there gossip? Is there backbiting or envy? Are you like Yodia and the other lady who, although they loved Jesus and loved serving him, they didn't really like each other very much? Do you not get along with some other ladies? Are you holding a grudge or an offense? I want to urge you to make every effort to get right with each other and with the Lord. It's so important. We're having communion today. Let's try to do that before we have communion. People are watching. May you have a gentle spirit that is known to all men. And, and not that we're doing these things to please men, no. We're doing them to glorify God, to honor God and to glorify our Father. Paul said to the Philippians, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. That goes for all of us. We all need this grace-given reasonableness when we're seeking to reconcile with others. Then Paul states, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. I want you to be encouraged today by this message. It appears that Paul's emphasis here is on the Lord's nearness in the sense of his presence. Our Father is near to hear our cries and to help strengthen us in our times of trouble. When we're not gracious with each other or we have, are having a hard time with being confident that God is sovereign over everything, He's near. He's always near. He's not far off. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 78, 28, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I might tell of your works. How great is this? Because God is near to us, we don't have to be fearful, anxious, or wavering in our faith. We don't have to collapse or have fear when we hear bad news about something that concerns us. Now, I'm saying that we don't have to. But many times we do. And I'll put myself first on that list. When we face trials, we often seem to forget what we know about God. We forget that he's God. In moments of crisis, we tend to lose our self-control and our spiritual stability and we act defeated. Even strong believers are not immune to this. I think of King David when he was seeking asylum in the city of Gath. He was recognized by some of the Philistines and realizing that his identity had been made known. He, he became fearful of the king of Gath and he panicked. And what did he do? Well, instead of trusting God to deliver him, he decided to take matters into his own hands. He lies and deceives the king and acts like a madman. The, the point is, let us not forget that God is near to us and that he alone is our refuge and our strength. He alone is the one who can rescue us from our troubles. Let's look at verse 6. Do not be anxious for anything. 
Let me just stop here for a bit before we read on because, you know what, in all honesty, that should be my life verse. I should have it in my car. I should have it on my screensaver. I should have it in my office. I should have it in the mirror in my bathrooms. It should be mine. He was writing this to me. Do not be anxious about anything. What is Paul saying here? The Philippian church faced many hardships. They faced external threats. We see Paul telling them not to be frightened by their opponents in Philippians chapter 1, verse 28. They were dealing with internal opposition. We can read that in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. They were concerned with their beloved friend Paul. We can read that in Philippians 4.10. They may have also been worried about how God would provide for them. We can read that in chapter 4.19. And I think we can all probably relate to some of those anxieties that they faced in their lives as a, a church. The Bible says in Proverbs 12.25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. It weighs him down. Anxiety is like a, a backpack with heavy rocks and you're trying to carry that backpack up a hill and you just can't. And you feel tense and you start sweating, maybe shaking and there's extreme pain in your body and your shoulders as you're being weighed down by this backpack full of rocks, i.e. anxiety. And, and you start having a shortness of breath. You can't really function. And it's a period of intense fear or discomfort that happens suddenly and then reaches an unbearable peak within minutes. It's called a panic attack. An anxiety attack. And, and we have anxiety when we start imagining the future in a terrible way. It drums up, anxiety drums up the worst case scenario in life. Let me ask, is some external threat causing you to be anxious this morning? Do you ask yourself questions like, what will our children have to face in a world that is hostile to God? What if I drop my child off at school and I never see him or her alive again because someone went on a violent rampage resulting in a mass, in mass casualties? The recent church shooting in Texas evoked fear and anxiety in many of us as Christians. What if it happens here, we asked ourselves. What will I do? How will I escape? How will I protect those I love? And these are real external issues that can really affect us and make us anxious. What if I get laid off? We just bought a house and we may not have the money to pay our mortgage and the house will go into foreclosure and we'll have to be homeless and have to live under the 422 bridge by the river and eat worms for to survive. That's where anxiety can take you. What if my illness comes back? What if my blood work comes back positive and I have cancer? What will happen to my family if I die? What if I never get married? Some may ask. And there's anxiety there. 
What am I going to do with my life? I'm about to graduate soon, and I have no idea, no clue what I'm going to do. The what-ifs. The what-ifs. They can be paralyzing. Anxiety can, can consume us, so all we think about is us. It robs us of peace. It kills our joy. And Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. Remember Jesus' words. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. So what do we do? about anxiety. Well, God is very gracious to give us some temporary things to help us with anxiety. Exercise, aromatherapy, classical music. I do all those things. My office is my quiet place. I have classical music playing in the background. I have nice candles that smell like fall. And as soon as Thanksgiving is over, it's going to smell like Christmas trees in my office. I'm going to have a little Christmas tree there. It brings me peace temporarily. You can come to my office and hang out. I have a nice recliner to rest and listen to the quiet music. Even some medications may help. And all those are good things. God understands our anxieties and he wants to help us. But we have to understand something very important. I, I need to understand something very important. When I'm anxious, I'm not trusting God. When I'm not trusting God, I'm sinning. And so anxiety and worry, Jesus said, are pagan practices. They seek after these things. And as a Christian, I should be seeking after something else or someone else. And his name is Jesus. He is where I should go first when anxiety arises. In Christ, there is a safe place for us to cast our cares and our anxieties. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Because, Because God is near to us, nothing is out of his sovereign control or is too difficult for us to handle. And therefore, we don't have to be anxious. The world could be a very scary place, can it not? Right? But when you know God as your heavenly father and Jesus as your savior, you can be sure that no matter what happens, you will be able to turn to him for help and for comfort. He will never desert you. He gave you his son and his son gave his life. For you. And we may rest in God's grace. And we don't have to act like the pagans do. 
when stuff of life seems overwhelming. You know what the remedy for anxiety is? Prayer. Look at the rest of this verse. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. God knows our needs better than we do. Nothing catches him by surprise. He is on the throne. And even if we were to combine all of the world's problems and all of our personal problems and all the things that cause anxious thoughts in us, if even if we were to combine them all together and they were the size of all of the universe, they would never be powerful enough to dethrone Jesus Christ. They would never be strong enough to take him off his throne. So what are we to do? We respond to anxiety with prayers of thanksgiving. As we thank God more and more, we begin to trust him more and more that he's got this. That he's got whatever it is we're facing. He's got it. We respond to trials with prayers of thanksgiving. And you might be thinking, well, how do I do that? In the midst of all that I'm going through, I can't even think about anything to be thankful for. And that's true. A lot of times we so become so consumed with the things of life that we can't think of anything else. Well, for me, and I'm not, I'm not telling you to do exactly as I, but I start off by thanking God sending his son who saved me from hell. That helps me remember my status before God. It helps me remember that I am forgiven. It helps me remember that Jesus is God and that he was tempted in every way that I have been, but not, but did not sin because he is perfect. It helps me remember that through his death, burial and resurrection, Death, sin, and hell were defeated. And that in Christ, I am a new creation. My old pagan ways are passed away. That helps me remember that I'm adopted. And I'm adopted by the Most High. It helps me remember that because I've been forgiven, because I've repented of my sin and entrusted my life to the Lordship of Jesus, He's holding me in his grip. He's not going to let me go. Even when life seems unmanageable. And as I reflect on those things, I start thanking God for them. And my anxiety starts to diminish more and more because I start thanking God more and more for what he's done for me. Thankful prayer is the cure to anxiety. Thankful prayer brings release from fear and worry because it affirms God's sovereign control over every circumstance in our life. 
And our anxiety will be relieved by going to him and thanking him for what he has done for us. And boy, has he done it all. Now, God isn't saying that that we will not have hard times and that we won't face anxious moments. Instead, though, he understands that in those hard times, we can offer up thanksgiving to God. Hard times, God gives us hard times. And they serve as occasions for us to pray prayers of thanks. So next time you're faced with a difficult time that God has blessed you with, it is an occasion for you to thank God for who he is. Paul did this, and he did it while he was in prison. He said to rejoice and be thankful. And death, it seemed, was at his door. You can seek our Father about any care you have, whatever it is, and he will answer you according to his will. Will you cast your anxiety on the Lord today? Will you trust your anxieties to the Lord today? And it's something you might have to do every day. He's there. He's near. He listens. He loves. And when you pray, look at verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here's the promise. Prayer doesn't keep us from having problems. However, once we pray and entrust our cares to God, we can have peace in the midst of our problems. God has promised to use everything that happens in our lives for our ultimate good, even when those things don't make sense to us and we don't understand why they're happening. The peace of God will guard our hearts when anxious thoughts and fears arise. Our understanding in times of these sometimes is really messed up. But the peace of God, which surpasses those understandings, the what-ifs, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. I just want to let you know that you can fight your anxious thoughts by believing that God is with you every step of the way. I can't say that enough today. That is a reason to be thankful. Fight anxiety with prayers of thankfulness. That is what a thankful church does. Going back to Proverbs 12, 25, where it says, anxiety is in a man's heart weighs him down. You know what the rest of the verse says? But a good word makes him glad. The gospel is a good word. It's the best word. Praying the gospel And how it has affected you 
thanking God for the gospel that makes the heart glad. What Jesus did for me on the cross when I didn't deserve it makes my heart very glad. And my anxiety starts getting lower and lower and lower because I start having a very low view of me and a beautifully high view of God and how great he is. Ushers, if you would start distributing the elements for communion. Believers, as we partake today, I want to share the words of an old hymn. O soul, are you wearied and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Through death into life everlasting he passed and we follow him there. Over our us sins no more hath dominion for more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you. He promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying. His perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. God said to rejoice. God said, not to be anxious. God said to be thankful in the midst of your struggles. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Indeed they will. Those things that you cannot manage. The what ifs. They will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Christ is the reconciler, the gentle savior who came to make dead men alive. His gift of salvation gives us cause to rejoice today. He removed our greatest fear. 
and receives our deepest anxiety through his victorious death and resurrection. He paid the penalty for those who sinned with their thoughts. And he grants them a new mind in return. Turn your eyes, brothers and sisters, upon Jesus for your righteousness and for daily renewal. And as you do, the peace of God will be with you. Take the bread. You know what? Hold that bread high. Father, we thank you today for your covenant commitment to us. We thank you today that through the sacrifice of your son on that old rugged cross, we have your promise that you will never leave or forsake your own but that you are our guide in the darkness, our help in times of anxiety and other troubles, and our strength when we feel overwhelmed. Thank you. Partake of the bread. Take the cup. Father, we thank you today for the blood of Jesus, which was shed for the remission of sin. We thank you that the blood of Christ is powerful enough to cleanse away the most vile of iniquities. And that through the blood of Christ, you have poured out the benefit of covenant commitment upon your people. That you are committed to us. That you are near to us that you love us. That you are grieving with us when we grieve and then blessing us with joy and peace through Christ and Christ alone. Partake. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you today. And I hope this message encouraged you because I think these are times where there's much anxiety, much hardship, not only internally, within our own personal lives, within the church, but externally in the world. Go with the peace of God. Go knowing that he has got this. And he is sovereign over it all. Amen.